0: on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine.
1: If I was invited to a retreat for men's work that's predominantly non-native, I'd be I, there's a good chance I would say no. And right out the gate because I'm expecting even though I'm going to a space that's looking to deconstruct toxic masculinity and bring us back to a wholeer self as men, I'm also there's a good chance I fear that I'm going to walk into a space where settler colonialism is full on blown like full-on 100% demonstrated. Whether you call it paganism or, you know, earth-based practices, they get make me uncomfortable as a Native man because some of them adopt or look or borrow straight-out steal and culturally appropriate Indigenous practices. And I get it. I also understand, like, folks of European descent, the, that traditional pagan practice was exterminated with the Romans, right? And it's like, it's... There's not much to go back to, depending on where you're from. But at the same time, I can't ignore that practice, right? I can't ignore that.
0: What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance? to navigate this space between stories. This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. My guest today is Indigenous activist and comedian, Dallas Goldtooth. I first crossed paths with Dallas at the Bioneers Conference back in 2016, as he arrived from the height of the action at Standing Rock where water protectors clashed with police against the Dakota Access Pipeline. This massive energy project would have cut through their sacred lands and polluted the water, and Standing Rock became a beacon of Indigenous resistance. Dallas is also a key member of the media team for the Indigenous Environmental Network, a nonviolent direct action trainer, and a Dakota cultural language teacher. When he's not fighting on the front lines, Dallas travels with his all-Indigenous comedy troupe, the 1491s. In our conversation, we touch upon a number of themes, including the subject of toxic masculinity, how much of modern men's work unconsciously enacts settler colonialism and cultural appropriation, and the power of humor to connect and create change. We begin with a short excerpt from one of his talks at the Bioneers Conference. Enjoy.
1: You know, since then, a lot of people come up to me and ask me, hey, Dallas, I want to help out. You know, I'm a white person. I love you Indian peoples. And I want to support the fight, but I just don't know how. Or I just, you know, I want to financially support, but I just don't know how much, right? And it's a really difficult question. So I've thought, I've thought deeply about this, and I've come up with a solution. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an innovative idea. It's a fundraising idea. Um, and I just wanted to share it with all of you. And so I, call, I made up this little diagram called <laughs> "It's the White Guilt Donation Guide." Um, you know, I think this is gonna be, this will solve a lot of problems, a lot of issues, right? It's just asking white folks just to donate to the level for which you feel guilty for what you did to my people. That's it. I that was straightforward, right? You know, and and we could have like levels of giving, you know, like the copper level. It's like if you claim your ancestor is Cherokee, but you can't prove it. Oh, $1,000. Boom. There you go. You know, the silver level. If you feel like a little uh, defensive or, um, you know, apprehensive when someone mentions white privilege around you, $5,000. There you go. Bam. You know, I don't know if there's anyone in this crowd, but like. If you voted for Trump and you regret it, $100,000. Here you go.
0: Dallas Goldtooth, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Would you please begin by offering a glimpse of where you are in this
1: moment? At this very moment, physically, mentally, spiritually. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I am in my backyard. I live outside of Chicago. And I'm currently holding my son, who is four months old. He's in a baby wrap, so he's strapped to my chest right now, sleeping. And it's beautiful out. It is like 68 degrees. The the bees and the wasps are flying, and people are taking care of their lawns right now in the background. And you can hear kids playing off into the distance. So it's a beautiful day uh, where I'm at right now, and I'm just sitting here enjoying the moment. Mm. Yeah,
0: beautiful. Yeah, thank you. How fitting for your son to be asleep on your chest for this conversation.
1: Yeah, this is like our routine. Um, We've got him into a rhythm, so he he sleeps at least six hours a night, seven at at most, Um, and then he wakes up about. He wakes up, he feeds he's wide awake for a good hour and a half and then he goes to sleep wakes up and then this is his afternoon midday nap right now and um mm. his most comfortable place right now is next to me like strapped to my chest this baby wrap is, is uh his preferred place to, to nap i understand you also have a few other kids i'd love for you to yeah i have bring them in i have uh, four other children who are all inside the house right now. That's why I'm outside. <laughs> It'd be far too loud in there. Yeah, we have an 18 year old. We have a 13 year old, um, and we have a 11 year old, and oh, as well as a nine year old. And then we have the little one here. How did fatherhood come to you? Was it something you always,
0: you know, had this calling for, or did it arrive unexpectedly?
1: I think that um well I unexpectedly to a certain extent like I mean the three older children my wife and I have together they're they're from her previous relationship and so when me and her met and we got together she had already had these three other children and um it was a, like to be honest I mean that was a lot of uh Interesting tension from the very beginning because it's like I've never been I would add up to that point I had never been in a relationship with somebody that had children. Um, I never find I didn't find it daunting. I didn't find it intimidating whatsoever. I grew up in a big family. I grew up. Um, I have ex- if you count all my stepbrothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters, I have twenty one siblings. Um, so I grew up in a big family. In my direct media immediate home, I had uh, uh, six of us in the home. So you know, a lot of kids is not scary to me. Um, and we just took it day by day. And it was like, when we found out that my wife, my, my wife is my now wife was pregnant with our first child together. Um, I saw it as an actual gift as a privilege that I already had, like a uh, on the job training that, you know, I had a newborn coming. I also had like, you know, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and an eight-year-old at the same time. So I was already getting a glimpse. Like, you know, I was already working through those experiences that other first-time parents never really get to get have. So I thought it was a beautiful gift.
0: You know, I'm just reflecting as well on uh, my son. He's 18 months. And when he was born, I, I it only really hit me, you know, surprisingly, that I had so little experience with young children mm-hmm. by that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a previous relationship with uh, who had a, she had a daughter who was, when we got together, her daughter was about five. And so we were together from about five to 10. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, yeah, I had some stepdad training and experience. And that being said, being with young children uh, had, you know, just really never been something I'd experienced. And, and I really struck me how bizarre that is actually, Mm -hmm. that here I was at this point, you know, 36 or 37 never having had experience with a lot of younger children. And for me, it felt like such a cultural failing of some kind yeah. that somehow somehow, it wasn't just a natural way of being.
1: It really depends on folks' upbringing. I think, like I said, I grew up with a lot of fa- lot of kids in the home as with siblings. Um, mm. I always wanted to be a teacher. Like that was actually when I first started going to school, I wanted to be a teacher and really focus on early childhood development and early childhood learning. So like I, I had a natural inclination towards like not being afraid or intimidated by work or to be around children. Um, with that being said, man, you know what? It, it, can I curse on here? I, I didn't ask that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> with that being said, it's fucking crazy how you know when you become a parent, you can't help but reflect upon your own parents you can't ref- you can't help but reflect on how you were gr- raised you know and the thing that blows my mind is i am r- my current age i'm currently 37 and i'm older than my when, i'm older than my dad when he when i was born like you know what i mean and i and i think about that like my parents our parents i don't know how your parents but my parents were kids kind of in know in many ways and you can't help but evaluate and make those little critiques of like oh that's they did that that now they did that, now I can see what I can do in my in my with my family um mm. so it's it's a really it is a beautiful thing that happens because you can't help but be, go into like an intergenerational framework of like mm-hmm. evaluation of like okay, what did I learn by being a child, watching my parents, and what did they learn you know so it is it is a really interesting dynamic to this all your father tom goldtooth is a
0: fairly well-known indigenous activist uh, i believe founder or co-founder of the indigenous environmental network Mm -hmm. and um i'm curious to know what it was like growing up for you as you've also become now you work also with the organization uh, among many other roles but what was that like also to have him as a father and you know him really giving his life and
1: energy to this cause so a little random fact today's my birthday and so what yeah wow happy birthday thank you um all right so um i didn't develop a relationship like a really good or at least a deep relationship with my dad until i was into my late teens to be absolutely honest my dad and my mom had divorced um, just after i was born and Um, I was raised, my mom quickly, soon after remarried, and this other man named Galen, who kind of raised me when I was a young kid. And then they separated. And so my early teenage years, I didn't really have a dad. Um, And in the early years, I would go stay with my dad, Tom, during the summers. You know that typical story, I'd go on like the breaks every now and then. Um, but we just we never really developed that really strong relation father son relationship, until I was well into my teenage years, and so it was, it was really interesting because I knew he was, I knew he the or, he did organizing. I knew he was you know working for an environmental justice organization and he traveled the world doing a lot of great work. But I didn't really, um, you know, it just wasn't close, you know. And I'm so thankful that I've been able to develop that closer relationship since then with him. And then my other, the other father, Galen, like we don't talk. I haven't talked to him in maybe five years, six years. And it's just like this weird flip. Like he was, was, he had a really close, really, he was my dad. Like growing up as a little guy, he was my father. Um, and they both, and he taught me so much about patience and leadership and, and strength. Um, and we just kind of grew apart in the, over the years after him and my mom separated and he remarried and it's just like um mm. it just something that happened. So I have a kind of a unique relationship with with fathers because I have I grew up in, essentially with two different fathers. Well, how has
0: that shown up now in your parenting then and or your role as a father? What do you feel is, you know, carried I, over and
1: I think well so I I moved around a lot. So growing from from kindergarten to twelfth grade, I never stayed in the same school for longer than a year and a half um I think two years two years is the most that was my eleventh and twelfth grade before then I would only like i moved so much my mom would move so much we would go um would be all always moving um and so I've realized <laughs> I've come to realize like there, um i don't know, how do I phrase this like like sometimes shit doesn't matter. Like, I I feel like it's like, I've, I've, because of that childhood, I got used to not having stuff like, because it'd be gone. Cause we move and things get lost. Right. Like, so I got used to things not being permanent and, you know, clothes, gifts, video game systems, like just toys, like, I got used to this idea like, Oh, we have it here, but there's good chance it won't be here in a couple of months. Um, and that's trickled over into my life or even that con- that's some actually creates conflict between my, me and my wife. Cause my wife is an opposite. She, she had a very somewhat settled childhood, right? Where she lived in the same home for numerous years. Um, mm. and how I, treat things i'm like I'm, i don't collect a lot of stuff you know and now i'm coming i'm coming like a dad so i have to start i'm starting to gather dad stuff like a grill you know <laughs> <laughs> like tools random tools and stuff um i look at wheelbarrows i'm like oh i want a wheelbarrow like <laughs> so it it is affected me in that way the, the it also having two dads allows me to have much more patience and has me has allowed me to really uh we way more open-minded man like way more understanding of i don't know i i just feel like i i am i know that there's numerous ways to get things done in the world and that's what i've learned i've seen two different men who have two different styles of leadership two different styles of personalities to entirely different personalities. And I've tried to, as I've become a father myself, I've tried to take the best of each and, and really bring those forth and then also not replicate the bad of each. Mm -hmm.
0: It looks like you have then taken on a a pretty key role at the indigenous environmental network. Um, I'd love for you to speak a little about a bit about that role as in what, what is the, what do you see yourself as, Holding there and serving, and I'm really curious about how that also seems to be uh, part of your comedy role as well. That it seems like these two two elements of you also are weaving together, and I'd love to know how these two things became so much prominent for you.
1: I feel like they're opposite, though. I feel like they're like actually competing, like they. <laughs> are not complimentary in any way. Um, I I utilize humor. I try to use humor in my organizing, in my work, but n- there's a difference between humor and comedy. And I feel like I, I, I can't really bring in the comedy into my work because it's, I don't know, man, it's like a wall. When, you, when you're when you trying to do, I don't know, this the social justice movement, that community is so... Um, uptight it's so like (laughs) self like so serious you know what i mean like you can't it's you're not allowed i feel like you're not really fully allowed to deal with the world within the social justice movement in a way that's in a way that's other than being angry you know or vitriolic or you know or woke like super serious woke like And I think it it really limits us, hampers our ability to really be, to be not only complete human beings, but to make sure that our movement is complete and whole. Why do you think that is then? Yeah. Why do you think there's,
0: there's this kind of unwillingness to bring in that element?
1: I, I don't know. I think it, to be honest, it comes down to narratives. I think it comes down to the, how we tell stories in that we feel like we have to tell stories in a certain way that the world is serious that the that that the consequences of this current economic system is dead serious literally dead serious for a lot of communities and so we have there's a sense that we have to respond to that narrative in like kind you know with a dead seriousness and um, i think it's a challenge for people to really bring in humor to bring in a light ha- a light hearted approach to to organizing It's not, I'm not saying it's not absent, it's not there, but I think it's definitely a challenge for a lot of people. Um, I give a lot of credit to like programs, like mainstream programs, like the daily show, which really, you know, has gone to show the power of satire and comedy and how it can really be utilized as a tool to give social critique. And I think a lot of people have since in the past 15 years really take up the power of satire and, uh, I really I, I like to see myself trying to build on that with, along with my other counterparts, but I think that we feel some we buy into this master narrative that we have to be we we have only a limited amount of masks to wear in public, and those masks are very much um, diminish your ability to be to respond to crisis in a in a way that's complete as a human being like, you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know. I guess what I, I'll speak. I maybe I'm, I'm getting too heady. I feel like, I guess I, if I had to give a name, one name to the work that I do, what uh, the role I play is I'm a communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, internally within the organization, I play a role with, with my other counterparts to help communicate. What's the current pulse of our, our of our membership of the communities that we work with externally my work my work involves communicating whether the the needs of the communities i'm working for and convey it in a way that not only spreads information but builds power and i think that's really what we should put our energy into it's not just spreading information but have a conversation about what you're sharing how is that building power i like to i would like to bring more comedy into my work but it's fu- it's fucking hard, man. I get like <laughs> as an artist myself. It's just even hard to try to like, get those get over those brain blocks, those mind blocks, and you know, mm-hmm. and do it. But I'd love to mention too that
0: you know I watched a Red X talk that you gave uh, at I think University of Calgary and your Bioneers talk where I think you opened with this idea of uh, I think the white guilt fundraiser. Yeah, that was fucking <laughs> fun. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I found myself I was laughing a lot um and it was really interesting and the, and the white was it the cougar
1: the white cougar uh yeah
0: <laughs> and that stuff it really is disarming in a way you know especially because i think most people are used to the narrative of say an indigenous man coming on and kind of laying the heavy guilt trip or something you know and they almost expect it uh and you come in and offer something completely different and in some ways yeah it feels disarming but no less poignant and like that to me is like such the power of I think what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I actually was on a so I was on this webcast yesterday, you know, or Friday. I was on this webcast, and it was a social service program based in Humboldt County, California, as a Native program, and they provide you know social services for like a bunch of Native and non Native clients, um, and they were talking about how they asked me like, how do I balance. Um, Speaking the truth, but also building allyship. Like, how how do I balance that of like being honest, brutally honest, as best as I can when I talk about colonization, talk about southern colonialism, uh, and white privilege, and and all the isms? At the same time, open, a, being able to create ne- networks and relationships with communities outside my own, um, and I I feel like I what I really what I my answer was a response to that, because they actually brought up that 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 Bioneers presentation. Um, I said, you know, I think if there's one lesson that I've learned over the years in my organizing, in my limited time, like I'm just a I'm still a young guy, is that we cannot shy away from the transformative power of conflict. That we that we've become so conflict averse that we don't we actually uh disarm the ability for conflict itself to create act- the actual lasting change that we need to see to make the world better and to make ourselves better. And that's so fucking true about us as men. Like I think that we've had for the past 10 years, we've been inundated, bombarded with conversations, conversations about patriarchy and misogyny and how, you know, men are trash, men are trash, we are the problem. And that we almost shy away from having that, the conflict, the conversation about, okay, let's really, well, one is that we, we, shy, we we're not open up a dialogue to have actually converse, talk about it. I think that it's really like just it's throwing the name of the problem out there, but actually not willing to talk about the problem itself. And then also internally as men, it's i feel like at times you're like man what's the point of you been trying to bring this up if we're just going to get attacked about it where's the space where where can i talk about it where can i deal with this internal conflict and i think the other the other th- so that's the one lesson i would talk to folks about is it's like of course conflict can be can be toxic conflict can be very um unhealthy but there is a certain part of it that is very much transformative Hold on my son hey, yes yeah, <laughs> no problem
0: so you're touching upon, I believe, the subject of toxic masculinity and something that you've uh, become somewhat outspoken about, uh, in particular, you know, you gave a talk of Bioneers. Uh, you also appeared recently, or a little while ago, in, in a podcast for the wild, where you talked about uh, dismantling toxic masculinity. And I'd love to know how this became uh, a subject that you really knew that you had to speak out about.
1: I mean, I can give you the cliche thing that everyone says. I had strong aunties and moms, and they showed me. Like, I did. I had fucking, I, I had a single mom. You know, I grew up with a single mom for a lot of years. And, see, I have a lot of aunties who've been through some heavy shit, who've been traumatized in so many different ways, and, and sisters and cousins. And I, I would like to say that I think, of course, the, seeing that, influenced me to always wanted to speak up uh, on to the issue of toxic masculinity. But really what really started, really pushed me was having kids, having a daughter, like, you know, mm-hmm. just sitting there and uh, being a native American man, being a native man, looking at the numbers of sexual violence, domestic violence in Indian country and a good chance that you know, the way the stats run is, one in three native women are going to be sexually assaulted before the age of 18. I have three daughters. Hmm. Like that's, that's sobering. That's terrifying. And, you know, talking to my wife, talking to my sisters, my cousins and, and learning about all the trauma that they've been through. Like, I'm like, dude, I gotta, I just felt like I have to do something. I have to really start fixing, addressing my own, insecurities my own uh, dysfunctions at the same time putting it out into the public using my gift that the the fact that my privilege that i have a lot of followers on social media to at least put it out into the public space the conversation so that's what i've been trying to do is just at least use that space to create a familiarity about those words about the concepts and in the conversation amongst ourselves as men and i think it's also realizing that it's not up To women, to address, it's not up to women to solve any solve this or to deal with it. Really, it's up to us as men to work with ourselves and and for us to really address it. So, I think it was just honestly, yeah having having a daughter like that's that was the moment. What's some of the most surprising things you found now speaking
0: out about this subject matter? You know, in terms of the response that you've gotten from perhaps both men
1: and women and the non-binary. I, I've, I've learned the utter lack of resources, cultural and physical resources for men that there is in this country and within our communities. There, I've learned that there are so many men who understand it, who get it, who can talk about how their trauma in their life has influenced them to be unhealthy human beings, but also realizing there's a lack of resources for them to go turn to right? Like not having a space to talk, to let it out, to, to heal is, is, was what I've come to really fully recognize. I think, I don't know, I don't know how it is in other communities. I'm really speaking specifically from a native perspective, but native communities, if you think a lot of the, um, under 18, like youth programs, like services and programs that are for youth, a good 80% Eighty percent of them are focused on young girls. Eighty percent of them are, are really focused on on uh, programs and program that's really specific to you, catering to young young women and, and and individuals who identify as women. And for men, it's not the same. And and it's this narrative, this story that well, they're hard to, they're hard to teach. They're not they're not as receptive. You know, we can just do sports programs, and that should be good for them. This podcast deals
0: a lot with um, looking to mythology, as I mentioned, and, and archetypes, and, and largely draws upon a, a sort of Western European mm-hmm. tradition. Um, in particular, you might have heard of books like King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, or Iron John, which is a book by Robert Bly, uh, which really kick-started what was known as the mythopoetic men's movement. Mm-hmm. started around the early, early 90s, and maybe you're familiar with some of those books. Um, but uh, my question is for you again, those largely draw from what feels like, again, a Western European perspective. And I'm curious to know for you and for your culture, without making any sweeping pan-Indigenous statements, because yeah. I understand, again, so many peoples have so many different um, mythologies and ways of, you know, cultural ways. Yeah. And, but I'm curious for you, where what was it like for you, you know, was there mythological models or stories that were offered to you, you know, when you were younger that would actually give you a sense of what does it mean to be a man? You know, within your culture or or masculinity to aspire to.
1: You know, it, it's funny that you bring that up because it really because when we before we started recording, you we were talking about that the framing of the mythological. And I I feel like I wanted to say like you know we didn't have that, like I mean we have stories we have so many stories traditional stories, and there's a lot of stories that have been lost right that have been lost through the process of colonization, but but a lot of the stories that we still have that are cultural stories as stories that have been passed on for generations, a lot of them focus on trickster narratives, you know, yeah, the contrary narratives, which is a character, but we, we call them Iktomi. Um, in a very pan in way, they're like coyote stories, but our, our, our character is called Ikhtomi, And Ikhtomi was always personified as a man and that character always did things that was opposite of what was expected or opposite of the cultural social norms or actually customary law. Like he would just do those opposite things. And the lesson from that is, you know, don't do what he does. That was always like, that's the the moral of those stories is that he is showing you the things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, I feel like it's not really a mythological representation of manhood to a certain extent. It's just these are, the things that the laws that he would break, the things, the rules that he would break, are more general things that all of us should practice. And to be honest, and it's a, I feel like it's a, it's a unhealthy, but it's a very much, it's a major part of a major story for our people. The only one that really comes to mind when we talk about stories is the story of the White Buffalo Calf Woman, who is the. So I'm Dakota. Dakota, also known as Sue, and. Our entire spirituality is focused on the prayer the peace pipe, peace pipe and um, the Sundance and sweat lodge that's that's our that's the where we come from our cultural foundation and all those teachings are came from a woman and so like our what you would I think the Western studies would call it our Messiah figure it was a woman her name was a white buffalo calf woman and so the people the story as it goes in very much abbreviated way that's that's okay to share here is that people weren't living right they weren't doing right good stuff and they were out of balance and so as a woman who came from the creator who brought teachings on how and 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 instructions on how for us to live correctly to how be how to be in balance and gave a number of, of ceremonies and teachings to the people and also it was a woman that clarified the responsibilities of the of men and women, of you know clarified the responsibilities for different groups within the community, and uh, you know brought us a lot. But in that story, in the actual story of how she came to the people, there was two men that saw her first. There were two warriors that were out scouting. They were scouting for buffalo, and they saw her. And she came. She appeared from out of a uh, a whirlwind, a dust whirlwind and so she appeared literally like you know walked out of a whirlwind and, and is at that point one of the guys said like hey check out that check check her out and the other guy's like hey man just fucking chill out like she just walked out of a fucking tornado she's i think this is something sacred here and the other guy was like nah like she's fucking hot like damn like she's hot i want to I'd, I'd hit that and the other guy's like fucking chill out dude like Literally, she walked out of a tornado, like fucking tighten up here. And the guy, the one guy, didn't stop with the thinking. And as she approached, he disintegrated. He turned into ash. Like fucking just died. (laughs) Like she just like extinguished him. And the other guy that was like recognized the moment, she was like, Look, I'm coming. I got some teachings for the peoples. Like, go back and tell them to get ready. And that's what he did. That, that moment. We share so much. Like when you asked that question, when you talked about the like thinking about the the stories that we tell and how do we frame it. That's something I care. I I it sticks with me. We always talk about the man that didn't like was thinking dirty thoughts. The man that wasn't recognizing the sacred femininity that was before him. And he was punished by just being erased. Like, and and the, and the recognition goes to the man who recognized that moment or the acknowledgement goes to the man who recognized the moment and took her message back to the people to, to let them know she was coming with some, with teachings. And I feel like wow, that's powerful, man. That's a really powerful teaching. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I can't help, but kind of critique it a little, like can't help, but how the, the story is a story we've been telling that story for countless generations since the very beginning since it happened and i can't but I also wonder how our communities have maybe taken that and changed it the, the interpretation of that to really set up that dichotomy of like bad man good man and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know no there's nothing in between there's no understanding of how do we heal or how do we address you know deal with that yeah that makes sense yeah
0: yeah yeah, I'm fascinated by, um, I mean, if I look to the story of patriarchy, or at least you could maybe call it the, the myth, the mythology of patriarchy that, I mean, it stems from a masculine God or masculine understanding of God, mm-hmm. as well as uh, sets up a relationship to the feminine of which the feminine is inferior and largely dominated, mm-hmm. and just how distinctly different uh, the, the story that you've just shared uh, is to, as an origin story, as a foundation yeah. of a culture. And you also mentioned how she, the White Buffalo Calf Woman brought uh, an understanding of you know, what, what the roles uh, of each gender, as you said. And, and I'm curious, what then did she offer to the men? Of you know, What were the right teachings for them? It
1: mainly was through the ceremony. So she brought certain ceremonies saying, look. She's like, look, y'all are fucking wilding out. I got some teachings for you. And these teachings are packaged within certain ceremonies that you have to do throughout the year. You know, the sun dance. boom. This is the sun dance. This is what it is. This is why you do it. Um the sweat lodge. That's why you do it. The um fasting like you're doing a, going up on the hill and fasting for 4 days without water. Within those they all had certain you know they had you know everyone had their certain role within that. And so that's where we get our instruction that like, like even today if I'm working with young men from my community I use those same ceremonies to pass on information about the responsibilities of being a man. Um, mm. So it's packaged. It's not. They're not information that stands apart from things, right? It's a very much grounded in indigenous philosophies and ideologies that, like, it's directly tied to the ceremonies themselves, which which are directly tied to the land itself, and they can't be separated. Mm. Um, I think that one thing I can I can think on is, is this. One of the teachings is. You know, women, when they're on their menstruation, that it's a sacred time for women. And, you know, that we as human beings, the teaching that that, that this is what we one of the teachings that we carry is that we as human beings um, are like sponges and we naturally absorb energy as life goes on, as our days go on. And that's positive and negative energy. It's just energy. And that women have a gift to help dispel some of that energy every month. With every moon, they're able to clean their bodies of that. Men, we don't have that gift. It is not a, it's not some, a gift that we have. And so in order to, to do something like that to clean ourselves, we have to go to the sweat lodge. So that's like one of the mm-hmm. teachings of the sweat is to, to detoxify our bodies. And so it's very different. It's a new, very specific. It's a very different perspective of how we talk about menstruation, right? It's not nothing bad. It's actually a gift that we as men lack, Mm -hmm. and so like that's something that we talk about like I remember a lot of our ceremonies a lot of our um, you know teachings are focused on sacrifice and the idea of that you are in greatest service to your community and to your people when you give of yourself when you actually you put the work in you actually fast you go through suffering and hardship and in in doing so, you're taking away suffering and hardship that others may carry and feel. And um, mm-hmm. so that's a really strong teaching that was really directed towards men.
0: I've been involved with different groups that are doing what's you know broadly called men's work mm-hmm. um, these days, which uh, whether it's Mankind Project, uh, which started, uh, again, from that mythopoetic men's movement time initially and has since spread to a lot of communities around the world Um, as well as more recently uh, another group called Sacred Sons, you know, out of uh, San Diego. And there, these groups are largely characterized by men coming together and doing a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of it is emotional, you know, awakening, Mm -hmm. let's say emotional intelligence, you know, and also creating spaces for men to, yeah, to be vulnerable, to be seen, uh, to do that kind of uh, healing work together. And, one of the things I want to mention or name is just you know being in a lot of these communities over the last few years myself, I haven't noticed many Indigenous men mm-hmm. there, um, and you know I, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. It, you know, one it could be largely sometimes the the cost of these things is obviously beyond um, many men probably afford, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I, and that's a real thing to for organizers obviously to to look to rectify. I think if if that was still something that say Indigenous men would want to attend, yeah. and I'm curious, I'm curious even that like what does men's work look like in your community or with other indigenous men that you've seen like is it is it the ceremonies or is it uh other ways in which men are coming together and doing
1: this healing work well there's two things that that your question brings up one i think the challenge is that a lot of i'm speaking very generally but i'll speak from I, i'll I'll talk from my perspective if i was invited to a retreat for men's work that's predominantly non-native I would be, I, there's a good chance I would say no. Mm-hmm. And right out the gate, cause I'm expecting, I I expect that even though I'm going to a space that's looking to deconstruct toxic masculinity and bring us back to a whole self as men, I'm also, there's a good chance. I fear that I'm gonna walk into a space where settler colonialism is full on blown, like full on a hundred percent demonstrated, you know, where it's, I get it cuz a lot of practices you know whether you call it paganism or you know earth-based practices they get make me uncomfortable as a native man because some of them adopt or look or borrow straight out steal and culturally appropriate indigenous practices and that's that's a huge blockage that's a huge issue right um I've seen so many places that will adopt or culturally appropriate indigenous practice knowledge practices and I get it I also understand like folks of European descent that that traditional pagan practice was exterminated with the Romans right and it, like it's it, there's not much to go back to and to depending on where you're from but at the same time I can't ignore that practice right I can't ignore that mm-hmm. and I think it's very much is I don't think many communities are in a space where it's okay I think we have to deal with our own I think that's where it really comes down to is like working within our own community with our own folks first. I don't think we're, we're not fully in a space where it's, we're ready to like bring all this full on blown movement. That's uh interracial and, and um broad yet. I think it's happening. Obviously they happen in pockets and, and there's moments people are doing that, but I think there's still, and we're still in a space where we really have a lot of work to do within our own community. Yeah.
0: I really appreciate that. Um, like you spoke to this idea of uh, uh, cultural appropriation, and, and I'm curious, what else do, do men who wish to be allies, to wish to do dismantling toxic masculinity, what else do they need to know in order to be in right relationship with indigenous men in this regard?
1: Well, I think the biggest one is... Um, I, good question. <laughs> but. So I, I I'll say it from this is if I'm working with men in my own community and I'm talking to them what I would preface which I would actually would emphasize is that the work that we are doing is not individual it's not necessarily individual work it's not you're you're taking this task to be a better man not really not fully for yourself it's for your community for your sisters your aunties your cousins for the community for the collective and i think that is always the goal it's always a matter of how is this how is this feeding the collective how are we providing for the collective how are we building power together as a collective um and I'm saying this with assumptions. I know some men are going to be like, oh, our group's not doing that. Or we, we think the same thing. But I do see a tendency for a lot of, like, non-native communities where they really they talk about it, but really the, it's all focused on individual growth. You know, it's a response on the individual basis. It's just like, you know, how do we solve the climate climate problem well i got you know i got a tesla and you know i (laughs) i put in the right lights in my socket so i'm doing my part you know Mm -hmm. it's this like really like individualist individual capitalism is seen as oh that's better than what 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 that's that's solving the problem when we're like look individual tasks are not going to solve the issue of us losing our humanity And losing our connection to Mother Earth, it's collective action, collective tasks that really is where the power is and should be going towards. And so, what my recommendation for any group of men that are trying to build to build community and to 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 address their own issues is to build towards that. How are we building collective power? As as opposed to I'm going to do I'm going to a workshop just to work on me and then I step away from that space. Like, I get that, that that helps to a certain extent. I can, that that serves some purpose. But I can't do anything as an individual. I, me as Dallas, everything I do, I'm like, really like, how is this building collective power? And if it's not, then I have to have a conversation with myself and saying, okay, is this worth, right now, is this a short-term investment that pays to the greater good? Or is this just me being selfish and just trying to deal with my shit? And then that's it. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. You know, I do think that
0: um this largely the previous wave of Med's work did spiral largely around what you're speaking to, mm-hmm. this idea of you know, sort of self personal growth and um, you know, well well meaning and well intended mm-hmm. and, and a lot of good healing work I think has been done. And yet there was something about uh that that um momentum of the capitalist culture at large, which you know, it kind of infects everything that that touches it like every good intention gets subsumed to the like foundational story of the individual uh the self and all the rest and i think what you're speaking to i mean maybe it'd be appropriate to to call it um or to ask this question how do we decolonize men's work and i wonder even now using that frame and i think you were speaking to it but what else would that might that mean to to
1: decolonize men's work I think one. Honestly, I think we need to tell new stories. We need to come up with, with those mythical examples. Like, what is? Human beings were storytellers. We're driven by stories. The most, tra- the most powerful transformations on this planet, whether it's like a low regional community to entire nations, have been driven by stories and narratives. And if we are really going to transform masculinity into healthy masculinity as uh, in a way from toxic masculinity, then we really need to develop, elevate better, stronger narratives, you know? And, and I think that means that could mean for individual communities. Cause that's really, I think what is I'm thinking about stories for my own peoples, but then also on the larger scale. Right. Um, and it's fucking hard, man. Cause it's like, mm-hmm it's hard because you you, if someone asks you hey man what are who are some name 10 if someone publicly asks you in front of a bunch of people like name 10 good men like 10 perfect men or 10 you know what i mean they put the pressure on it and you can't help in the day-to-day you're like all right i can name that person but i know that there might be three people in this room that might not that might think otherwise and then you backtrack and you're like oh shit because we've we've um polarized all of our conversations and even the idea of masculinity is polarized where you're good, you're on point, you're woke and you're not. And I think Mm -hmm. the task at hand right now is to create and elevate stories that show that we are on a spectrum like many other identities and that we are all in a space of, you know, with a strong potential to transform ourselves. And that the act of decolonizing is not a definitive, a definitive act with a start and end point. It is ongoing action. To decolonize as men is ongoing action each and every day, just as much as it is somebody trying to sober up, just as much as it is mm-hmm. somebody trying to, to deal with any type of illness or sickness or disease that they may have, it's ongoing treatment. And that's a, a, a quintessential story that we have to reinforce within ourselves as men and outside i'm not perfect Mm. dude i've i am so fucking grateful for my wife who has made me a better person and i am forever in her debt because she's pushed me to step up she's literally pushed me to step up saying look you need to step (laughs) up and be a better partner to be a better father and has called me out on my shit and i've tried to internalize that to step up be more present you know to to not just ignore the loads that she is carrying, and be you know, and and, and help help carry that. Um, so I say that because I'm like I'm still decolonized, I'm still working it out. So people say, oh Dallas, you, he's woke, he's like, you know, he's all he's down, he's he. The, the idea is that they're putting it on the pedestal, and we're like, fucking get rid of the idea of the pedestal. Mm-hmm. That shit is actually counterintuitive to the work that needs to get done. We are all working to be something better. I was just in uh, a couple months ago. I, um, I have an older brother who is in prison. He's in a federal prison. Mm. And I went in to talk and I actually went to visit him. But then I also organized uh, a men's group inside. And mm. talking with the guys there, um, lot, there's a lot of natives, um, black, white, mixed race, um, and we just had a conversation about the work that I do, but I end up coming, to, I end up talking about toxic masculinity for a, a bunch of guys who are in prison. For the most part, are in there from five to twenty to the year to life, and it just was in, insightful and enlightening for me to even be in that space to learn from them to talk when they are processing what it means to be a man in prison and if there's no other place where toxic masculinity is exhibited in practice, it's, it's in prison. Mm. It's where it's reinforced. It's where men don't have a choice. You have to wear that fucking mask for your survival at times. But even in that space, there are men trying to be better, trying to step up, be more accountable to, to, to take responsibility for their actions And I got to recognize that even though in many ways, all those men are in many, in certain eyes, those men, all those men are doomed. There's no coming back from the things that they've done. But as somebody that's committed to, to making the, trying to help make the world a better place, I can't help but say, okay, they're trying to, they're on their their own path. Wow.
0: You know, you strike me or it strikes me that uh, one, the beauty of your partner, as you mentioned to, to call you out and to call you up and, and actually, how powerful it is also to have a group of men to call each other in mm-hmm. uh, and call each other up, and I think so much of the problem right now in the culture at large is this kind of uh yeah the outrage culture where someone transgresses or you know yeah quote isn't perfect or or even yeah, does some pretty you know heinous things that the the outcry is aimed at utter destruction you know utter outcast casting and and so i wonder again what do you what do you say to the 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 cultural conversation like what needs to shift in order to actually create the space not to excuse behaviors you right that are uh fundamentally trespassing but how to um, invite a, a kind of response that actually could lead to healing instead of simply ousting the bad guys
1: and suddenly that will lead to a healed culture yeah, man, this is a real conversation for so many native communities, just small communities, right? Um, I had this, I had a chat with my aunt, my cousins once, and my cousin, some of my cousins are women that um, do. Uh, one of my cousins works on you know addressing sexual violence and domestic violence, and the other cousin does like, social social service work, and they were like, we're frustrated, we're utterly frustrated because we can't kick out all the dysfunctional creepy men. Like she's Mm -hmm. like, we have a, we're a community of 1500 people here. If we said, Hey, all the men who have, you know, have, who've been, who have felonies, all the men who have misdemeanors, all the men that have maybe even allegations of, of, of assault, um, all the creepy men that they don't have any actual thing on paper, but they're just creepy men. If we kick them all out, they're like, my auntie was my cousin. She was like straight up honest. She was like, there would be like two guys left on this res. <laughs> like it's a systemic issue. This is a problem that we all recognize, but she was like, but we can't just do banishment, which was a traditional form of punishment for us is just straight banishment because she was like because then we realized that it has infected every single person on in this community, what do we do? Right? What do we do when we if we, if the majority are good a part a good part of like male leaders who are over the age of 55 have problematic histories, right? Whether even if they don't have some like hardcore stuff like assault charges or felonies or things like that, they have a history of misogyny, right? How do we create the space to call people in as you say? Um I don't have the answer. I think it's really is is I think a part of the answer is just rejecting the absolution the abs, the absolutism is that is that a word Mm. (laughs) you know this i think yeah you know like day and night approach where it's like it's all or nothing they all have to leave they all have to get kicked out they all have to be removed um Mm -hmm. it doesn't work i wouldn't i don't think that's going to really create healing communities and also just to put it out there and folks might find this upsetting but it also doesn't speak to the fact that toxic masculinity is not necessarily only um, perpetuated by men or those identify as men. Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity has literally been a part of entire communities where women exhibit it too, or women exhibit that as well. Like, mm-hmm. so it takes a community effort. It takes a certain way of thinking. Um, I've been very interested to learn more. I have a lot of allies, especially within the black community who do are, are, um, Abolitionists who really are against the idea of, of prisons, and mm. I'm still challenged, but I don't know if I fully agree with it in, in, within, in the context of my community, but there is some power to that narrative, the idea of like how do we punish? How do we address the problem you know, in a different way than what mm-hmm. is the current criminal justice system? So I think that the more we talk about it I think that's th- that that's the step to the right solution is not being afraid to talk about criminal justice reform talk about how do we how do we deal with problematic men how do we deal with um unhealthy and very toxic or unsafe behaviors right hmm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it, it was fun. It was just fucking crazy because my cousins like we would, would have, there would be like two guys here, and one of them would be like a four year old, <laughs> and the other guy would be like seventeen, and he's like, he's gay, and he doesn't, he just stays to himself and watches Broadway shows. Like he just, that's just it. <laughs> like just those two guys. Everyone else would be out. <sighs> hmm. What do you see as
0: a possible future of what masculinity could be? like and again i don't mean a sort of abstract lofty ideal but like what are some indicators already of what what it could look like or what may look like you know on the other side because oftentimes uh, yeah. again we do have this culture right of we have this culture of this we don't want that or this is negative or this is bad and there's very few models what we've built in uh, towards right yeah exactly yeah uh,
1: i think that we are seeing a lot of growth man you you got a kid now you what is it you have a daughter son a son yeah, yeah 18 months there i got kids almost all my kids are either majority of them are going almost into middle school and this generation dude it is it it's a woke generation i ain't gonna lie like mm. the the terminology the ideologies that that the young, younger folks who are in middle school high school early 20s that they're carrying is way fucking more progressive than you and our generation i mean just straight up like i'm already seeing conversations like my son you know my son when he was uh how old was he seven years old he had two classmates that identified as transgender and he had no there was no qualms about the usage of language they said oh yeah um oh so-and-so's trans and um you know We, you know, I talked to her about it and like the, Hmm. the openness and the will, like there was no inhibitions to talk about, uh, transgender issues. There's no inhibitions to talk about sexuality, like, um, gender fluidity is just common practice now. And it's, I, I see that going in such a great direction where, I mean, how old are you? How old are you, Ian? I'm 39. 39? All right. So, like, we grew up... I was just thinking about this. We grew up with these tropes, right? Mm-hmm. Every fucking movie in the late 80s and 90s. Like, I I think I realized now I was taught fucking tropes that every high school movie, there was the jocks and there was the nerds. <laughs> and the jocks, every movie, the jocks were the same kind of trope. They were the same guy. And you had the nerds and then you had the pockets of folks that were... You know, it, everyone was really... Clicks. It's not the like, fucking high school is clickish. I mean, they, you can't ignore that. But mm-hmm. how masculinity was expressed to us through pop culture, and how it is now, it's crazy different. And that I'm giving me a lot of hope. So much, so much hope.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I appreciate that. I do see. You know, I talk to youth and younger men now, and again, by if I trot out the idea that. You know, toxic masculinity is that you can't show your feelings, and you know you can't show tears. A lot of the younger[s] are like, "What are you talking about? (laughs) Like, no, no, it's fine." Yeah, (laughs) yeah, dude, (laughs) I can cry. Yeah, that's and and uh, so it's beautiful actually to see that uh, that there has been what feels like a significant shift Mm -hmm. in in the stories that they're living, and um, and in some ways it's almost like the synthesis of the efforts made in the previous generation are almost like the the issues of then are just almost like not even worth talking about it anymore they're kind of like oh yeah no it's fine like you said oh yeah no there's trans cool yeah you know anyway you know, on to the next thing <laughs> and you're like wait wait no uh, so no let's a-
1: talk about it and they are like no dude yeah. what, what's they talking about like move on as a result of that we are we are seeing men who are more able to express their feelings and emotions we're seeing young men who are able to connect the dots between their own insecurities potentially insecurities and how they express those are you know push those outward Um, I think that there is obviously a challenge. Every, every young person is always a challenge of helping people connect the dots, right? That's really our jobs as educators, as teachers, as parents is helping kids understand the world and how things are related. Mm -hmm. And, and so when I say that, like there's a, a greater chance that they will connect what's going on inside. To what's going on outside because there's conversations around patriarchy there's conversation conversations around white privilege the words are out there they're familiar with people and now our task is ongoing is like okay the buzzwords are there but do you really understand what they're saying do you really mm-hmm. understand the relationship between white privilege and and colonization or white supremacy and and capitalism like how are you are we really connecting those dots or are we just throwing out buzzwords and so that is the the young men's work is helping connect those dots and so that we are really challenging the greater structures overall because I really am always very I'm hyper aware and, and critical of how the current economic sy- system how capitalism merely kind of uh, absorbs what can be seen as progressive ideals and just kind of absorbs it and accommodates it. Right. Yeah. It says, okay, that's cool. Now let's find Let's accommodate your perspective into the system. Right. So let's create more apps that are inclusive. Let's create, you know, a a workspace that's more inclusive, but without actually challenging how the system itself is creating, creating inequities are perpetuating those inequities. So I think that's really where the work we go towards, but, the base knowledge is fucking great. Like where, like I'm talking to young guys and they're like, "Yeah, they're, there's so many things that they're light years of, of other of of my age and myself." You know, I was watching this movie. Man, I can't remember the movie. It was like, it was a, a mainstream teenage movie, and ah, oh, what was it? Someone's someone listening might know it, but anyways, it was all teenagers, high schooler kids, and. There is the popular guy, the popular guy in high in high school, and he's seen as a jock. He's like you know fit. He's a basketball or he's a star quarterback in the movie, and he has a party, and every, and all and the main characters want to go to the party, but they're not invited. You know they want to crash it, and it turns out there's one key moment where the main character busts in on the jock or the well known dude, and he's in bed or he's just got done making out with a guy and a girl, and. The way they handled the the film handle, it was like he was like oh yeah I swing both ways what is it whatever and then it passed it on mm. well, and I was like that's fucking like you know the old me the or the old guy the dad was like oh it's pretty cool look at that <laughs> that's cool yeah. and my my daughter who was high school she's like you're weird what are you what what are you talking about <laughs> and I felt weird now I'm like I I felt weird at that moment bringing it up and I'm like I'm just mm-hmm. saying like we didn't have that on. We didn't get to see that stuff.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
1: I'm going to figure out
0: what that movie is later. I I got to put it in the show notes. I got to
1: find it somewhere too.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) we're uh, just over an hour and I'm really appreciating this conversation,
1: Dallas. And
0: maybe I'd love to uh, ask you about this moment for you. I mean, we're still in the midst of this COVID, you know, wildness. And I'm curious how this time has been for you, you know, your family, your community yeah, uh, and and what is it? What has it meant for you? And a more kind of larger implications of you know what what this is.
1: I'll say this on a personal level. This is the longest. This is mind blowing for me. This is the longest I've been home with my family and for consecutive days in almost twelve years. Like, actually, before, like, yeah, this is the longest. Uh, for Since my wife and I have been together, this is the longest I've ever gone without traveling for work. Because that's what it is. I work for not only IEN, but I also do comedy work and public speaking. And so before this, for the length of our relationship, the longest I, I had not traveled was maybe two and a half months. Three months? Two and a half mm. months. And now, um, like... Because of the birth of my my son, we didn't, I didn't travel all in November. So from November to now, I've been home and it's flipping amazing. It's just Mm -hmm. like my daughter, my, our, my, the second youngest, when she was a baby, I was traveling so much. I would be home for four days and then I'd be gone for a week and a half, four days. And I'll be gone. Like I was so inconsistent. And we're thinking about, like, how how wonderful my son gets to have me in the home all the time now to both his parents. You know, that's a privilege. And then now with the COVID-19, the other thing is, like, our son, because of this, since his birth, he's had all his siblings nonstop in the home with him. Like, wow. nonstop. We're there. Everyone is here at home. They're not leaving to school. They're not doing anything like you know what I mean? Like we're like, dude, that's something unique that not many anyone has nowadays, that experience of childhood like where all your siblings are literally you're seeing them all the time. So we worry about okay, once this gets alleviated, people start traveling like, I worry about how he might deal handle that. Um mm. so that I think is a good thing. I've, no, I've I get out of this. Um I think Indian country is struggling right now. Is struggling to to prepare to mitigate uh, the pandemic. I mean, to be real, like you have the the outside of New York and New Jersey, the third highest hotspot in the country is a Navajo Nation. You know, so it's real. Um, the pandemic has really hit hard na- the Navajo Nation. So there's a lot of efforts to help support the communities down there. It's really affecting a lot of people in remote areas because they're like they're so already on the edge of dealing with so much you know they're already vulnerable because of the high prices of everything that to add the idea that they might have a pandemic coming through or sickness and that's really terrifying for a lot of native communities in rural areas so that's that i think that what i do see happening that is a po- another positive thing is that because of this a lot more tr- native communities are asserting their self determination to protect themselves. So you see roadblocks and checkpoints going up. They're seeing them, you know, block access for non-native communities from coming in, and um, that's really good to see because what we what I see is like the communities are making it familiar. All right, if we get non-native allies in the area, if we get the non-natives that live around us familiar with our own checkpoints, our own, you know, um, pr- you know, our own police forces are our, our protection folks out there like then we can that's something that's a bonus for the future down the road so that's something that could speak to greater work that could happen yeah i i uh the world's not going to be the same after this i think we we have people have become comfortable with the reality right now right people are people are finally, you know, hopefully a lot of folks are now wearing their masks when they go out and gloves and all this other stuff. And we've, we've settled into this moment thinking, okay, this is just still temporary falls right around the corner. It might be different, but no, what we're experiencing right now is literally going to change the world is changing the world. And that's where I think a lot of us are trying to put energy into is like, how do, what is it going to be changed for the good? Or is it just going to make it worse for a lot of for a lot of people, mm. and um, you know, that's where I really want to focus on is trying to make sure that we change something for the good.
0: You've no doubt seen the reports of uh, you know the environmental uh, regeneration, actually in some places, and I think I, I think I saw the report like eight percent drop in global emissions as a forecast for the year because of this. And so, in some ways, it's it seems appropriate to see that as a, as a win for Mother Earth. Yeah, in some ways, but right? It, yeah.
1: It's it, I do. It's a short term win, but I'm fucking terrified coming out of it mm-hmm. because we yeah. know how this fucking beast that is the economic system, uh, how capitalism works, is they want to get back up to the status quo, right? So if you're in a if in their eyes they see it as a deficit, but in our eyes Mother Earth is rege- re-healing re healing and regenerating. For them to get back to the status quo, it's it's gonna be double time, right? Like I'm I'm expecting, I a part of me expects like when we get to a place where they say okay, quarantines lifted and the quarantines lifted and people get back, you know, you can go back to your jobs and stuff like that. I'm expecting full blown um, government backed ads of like shop, shop, shop. Mm -hmm. Need to help America. Help! Help our economy. Yeah. Get out and go get grow, go, go get all those clothes you didn't buy. Go get just go buy, buy, buy. You know what I mean? Then, and, and that's where I don't. I'm like I can see that happening.
0: I read a really great article came out a, f- a few weeks ago, but it, it the title was uh, "Be prepared for the ultimate gaslighting," mm. which uh, is exactly what you're just speaking to. That this you know total uh, press towards get back to normal as quickly as possible, and and in some ways. Forget what you recognized actually during this time, Mm -hmm. like for example, you know, you recognizing, wow, what a what a gift it is to be with my family for this time, Um, and other ways in which you know, cities are like, wow, we can see the you know Himalayas for the first time you know ever uh, from you know this city, and and there's this going to be that the article said this sense of no, no, you didn't really see that, you know, you actually want to get back to normal, and I guess my question to you is, you know, how can we, uh, you know, keep the keep our eye on the beauty and the the elements that we actually need to remember in order to help guide us, you know, in this next chapter when the amnesia, you know, machine is going to be working overtime.
1: I think it, I don't know, it's a tough one, man. I think that it comes down to using this moment just as much as you see movements trying to, in a moment of crisis you always have those shifts right you have uh, like, tremendous shifts that are progressive shifts more conservative shifts back and forth and i think that's why we don't we can't wait until we get out of this to make those shifts we have to be now you know sell like we just had may day and a big part of may day was helping support workers and worker rights right and that i think we all across the country we sw- there's this big push to get corporations to help, especially those that are deemed as essential businesses like Amazon and Walmart and all these places to actually do right by their workers. Every one of us have to continue to push for those things. And I think even just, I don't know, like, I don't know. I see myself as really talking to my sisters and my family and saying, look, you realize, look, you just went four months without actually buying whole new wardrobes. I think you can You can make that Mm. continue that process, right? Like you don't have to be going and buying every, you know, every, you don't have to go to the mall every, every couple of days. Like in, yeah. So I, I think that right. Well, I'll just, maybe the way I really would would want to land is the idea that we need to make those shifts now and not wait until after. I think that there's solid conversations about how we do business, how businesses work, you know, it's not ideal. I know a lot of people struggle with it, but I think the idea that not more people realize they can work from home, it really call, calls into question like, do I need to, do we need to have this structure where we have offices? Like I know some places do. I know some families do Some like it's the way it works. Yeah. But I think yeah. we, we should question everything publicly question them as well as privately. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh. Well,
0: Dallas, thank you so much. Um, yeah, is there any last words you want to offer to uh, this conversation and perhaps even in, if you want to direct the listener to any ways of supporting uh, you know, Native communities? If
1: you want to direct, uh, one way is uh, the Indigenous Environmental Network does have a couple mutual aid funds up and running. Um, we've pledged to at least, at the very least, uh, disperse over $200,000 to frontline Indigenous communities in both North and South America to help them um, with the effects of this pandemic, if you want to help support us in that, we are trying to give out as much as we can. If you have the resources, I definitely check out the Indigenous Environmental Network, Network website to learn how you can contribute to that fund. Or you can also donate to IEN for our ongoing environmental justice fight. So I'm I'm to keep it in the ground campaigner. And in the middle of this pandemic, we're seeing oil and gas corporations moving full steam ahead to build more pipelines to dig up more earth to get more oil out of the ground while the price of oil has tanked they're still trying to push far ahead so if you want to support on the ground on the ground frontline organizing help us out um as for parting words I just thank you so much for creating the space to have a conversation around masculinity around a space for us as men I I tell you man like We don't have, there's not a lot of public space for this, right? And the more we open it up, I think the greater it helps. And so for those out there listening, just continue to have public dialogue as much as you can. Even as just posting your thoughts online, just putting it out there. That's how we really build that power is just putting our voices out there and not keeping them inside because of out of fear of how we might be judged or our own insecurities. That's, I, I guess, all I got to say, man. I, I just, I love this, and I, I love this opportunity. Thank you
0: for listening to today's Mythic Masculine Podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.